Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities uh, Forum, which organized tonight's event. You can visit the club at www.commonwealthclub.org and to see our online programs, backslash online, um, to see all of our programs, the all of the uh, lectures that have been before um, over the years. Uh, we get millions of hits on our programs, um, and you have a lot to look at and, and get a little bit of education on the side, just in case you're staying at home. So uh, tonight... It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Robert Hurst, the uh, editor of the Mark Twain Papers and the curator of the Mark Twain Project. I got those both reversed, right? <laughs> and he has spent the last several decades doing this, um, and, and we have so many good stories to tell. So we're going to go right to the stories. So, Bob, tell me a little bit about how you got started with, with the, the Mark Twain Project. Well, I was a graduate student in the English department at Berkeley, and I... Yeah, that's that tells you what editing Mark Twain does to a person. <laughs> um, I was a graduate student, and I was supporting myself as a TA. Uh, I wasn't very happy with what I was being taught, and I uh, managed to fail my German, which mm. meant I didn't pass the German reading test in a timely way. Mm. So they fired me, mm. and I had to get a job. And it just so happened that the National Endowment for the Humanities had been created in 1965, and it was beginning to fund editions of 19th century American authors, including Mark Twain. Mm. And so the office over in the library, where I had actually taken a seminar with Henry Smith on Mark Twain, was looking for uh, checkers and proofreaders. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd never checked or proofread anything, but I applied. Mm -hmm. I applied with several people who actually I've been working with for the last... 40 years. Wow. Um, and this was a very um, unusual situation for this kind of edition. Most editions, scholarly editions, are run by faculty members who spend only part-time on them. Mm -hmm. But the guy in charge of this one, Fred Anderson, he was in charge of the papers, hired three, four, sometimes five graduate students part-time, $2.21 an hour, municipal mm -hmm. wage, excellent wage. Yes. Uh, and he basically threw us into the archive and said, go do it. <laughs> uh, the people who were doing the editing were, at that point were faculty members, and they could come out and visit the Mark Twain papers for a summer maybe. Mm -hmm. But we were there all the time. And so it wasn't very long before the people who were graduate students uh, working for Fred, knew more about the archive than almost anyone else. Yeah. And as a result, they worked as assistants to these faculty members, who I have to say were very generous in saying, you know, you, you really should be on the title page. They should be, mm -hmm. but they weren't. Uh, that didn't happen for quite some time. Uh -huh. um, the, the notion that the the faculty member is the authority and the person who is taking credit and responsibility for what's done was was pretty powerful. Really wasn't until 1975, uh, that's about almost a decade after I'd started doing this, uh, which I did in 1967, mm. um, that someone, one of the members of the staff, a guy named Mike Frank, um, got so fed up with this notion that 
only the faculty members would go on the title page. Then right. he went up to Fred, who was staying home that day, and he pounded on the table and and he got, you know, concessions. <laughs> the concession was that Fred would appear first on each of the three volumes of the notebooks, and then two or maybe three of the rest of us would be subordinate to that and so uh-huh. on. And that's that started the ball rolling. It started it started making it clear to the funding agency, which was at that point the National Endowment for the Humanities and has continued to be since 1967, um, it made it clear that the people who had the know-how and the energy to do the textual work were these graduate students. Now, graduate students, they didn't all stay graduate students. Right. <laughs> some of them moved into this job on a permanent basis. I, I I didn't. I went on and got my degree and went to UCLA for, for three years. Well, you mentioned that, that uh, your salary was 220 an hour, and I just wanted to mention for people who are younger uh, that 220 is actually double in 1967 what I was earning per hour. I got a dollar ten an hour, so it was actually a fairly it was a very wage. generous salary. I don't, I don't, <laughs> it just doesn't sound sound that doesn't way. sound like it anymore. No, <laughs> you do the conversion. Right? <laughs> uh, but the fact is, we we those graduate students gradually took over the whole. Role of establishing the text, mm-hmm. dealing with the documents that are the basis for a text, knowing how to manage them, how to report the decisions that you are making, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And we had a big influence on the way in which the edition was being done at that time, and then even more so after 1980 when I came back to be the general editor. Well, all those of us who over the decades were doing research on Mark Twain really, really appreciated all that work. And I have, I have almost all of those books that, that you see uh, put I'm out glad, over the years. I'm year. glad of yeah. it. There are a lot more to come. A lot more to come. Yes. So, and we'll talk about the, the big, big one a little bit later. Okay. But um, to, to go back just a little bit, sure. um, let's talk about how the papers got to Berkeley. Well, there's a picture of Clara. Clara was Mark Twain's sole surviving daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, is two, one older, one younger daughter, both died before he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, along with the official uh, appointed biographer, Albert Bigelow Payne, were put in control of what to do with these manuscripts that Mark Twain left behind. Payne himself was not very interested in publishing them. He published some of them, mm-hmm. um, but he was a very good Victorian editor who's <laughs> took it as his responsibility that um, Mark Twain was not to say anything that he shouldn't have said. <laughs> and he said many of those things. Yes, and he said <laughs> like that. So he was a kind of block to what could get out. Mm-hmm. Clara um, was uh, married at this point to her second husband, a guy named Jacques Samasud, um, who was something of a snake, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a gambler and... Um, and probably a lot of other things that weren't uh, very, very, uh, very favorable. In any case, uh, she decided um, she could decide where these papers would go. Mm-hmm. She could not make them over to anybody. She couldn't sell them. She couldn't give them away because of the terms of her father's will. Mm-hmm. All right. So wherever they were between Payne's death in 1937 and 1962. When she died, depended on where she allowed them to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Payne died in 1937, a guy named Bernard Devoto, really very smart guy, right. 
was not a, not a professor, but he was, you know, he was well in with the people at Harvard. He got the papers. He was named the editor of the papers. Mm-hmm. And Harvard uh, gave him two rooms in Widener Library. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what that means. Yes. yes. It's sort of like, um, well, I can't even, there's no comparison. <laughs> no, no faculty member was going to get a room in Widener Library. Uh, he took them there. He did a lot of very good work. Uh, on them, organizing them, and so forth. And he resigned uh, from his position 15 or 16 times because he couldn't get along with Clara. Ah. He wanted to publish certain things that, like Letters from the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, which she regarded as detrimental to her father's reputation. Right. She said, it shows my father's disrespect for the Bible, mm-hmm. which it certainly does. It certainly did. does, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, he published some things. He did not publish Letters from the Earth, although he prepared it for publication, mm-hmm. um, and quarreled enough with her till he finally did resign in favor of a man named Dixon Wechter, mm-hmm. who was an American historian of a very you know, high rank and uh, well-regarded, big, tall Texan, very courtly. Mm-hmm. Um, he decided that he wanted to move the papers from Harvard out to the Huntington Library in California. Mm-hmm. And he had to have her permission to do so, which she gave him. Mm-hmm. And he stayed there for two or three years. His goal was to write a biography of Mark Twain using these things, using his exclusive access to these things. Neither Devoto nor nor Wechter allowed people to use them, mm-hmm. certainly not graduate students. <laughs> um, in any case, after two years, he decided that, well, he really wanted a job in the history department at Berkeley. This is 1949. So he called them up and, oh, they said, come on up. You know, well, that's, that's the way they did things in 1949. Yeah. Um, not now. If you want to come, you can come. If you want to come, you're a big shot, you can come. Okay. <laughs> um, so he asked her, could he take the papers with him to Berkeley? Mm-hmm. And she did. She said, okay, I'll give you a 10-year permission to do so. Mm-hmm. And he moved up here. And then literally before the papers could get to the library, he wrote her and said, um, I really think you should change your will. Uh, her will at that point said the papers would go to Yale. Oh. Which was a, a logical choice for, among other things, they had given Mark Twain an honorary degree mm-hmm. long before Oxford did. Right. So they recognized uh, him as a serious person, and the family was uh, themselves a little in doubt whether he was a serious person. Yes, they were. So <laughs> it was, a, it was a, you know, a big thing that Yale had given him this thing. But Wechter, who was this big, tall Texan, was just on very good terms with her. Mm-hmm. And he writes her a letter and says, I really think you should change your will. I think you should change it so that they go to the University of California. Mm-hmm. And she writes back and says, I'll send you a codicil next week. <laughs> and that's, that's how it happened. So he, was, he was, must have been very courtly. He was very courtly. <laughs> big, big, tall Texan. Unfortunately, this is 1949. He dies in 1951 huh. of heart attack. In any case, but the papers come to Berkeley, and President Sproul is very much in favor of this. He wants to make it a Mark Twain Center, mm-hmm. and then, boom, Wechter dies. So it's a little bit of a hiatus between 1951 and 1957 when Henry Nash Smith, who was at Minnesota, was asked to come out and be the general editor, not well, be the literary executor at that point is what they were, well, his title. And a joint appointment with the English department. Um, Henry was enormously 
prestigious and yeah. wise and good. <laughs> All at the same time. All at the same time. <laughs> well, a remarkable guy. I let uh, the audience see just a little bit of what some of the things are uh, in the papers, because uh, when you say papers, it just kind of gets yeah, the Yeah, what idea. is papers, right? Yeah. Well, in, in one use of the term, papers really means things like letters and notebooks and and literary manuscripts that were not intended for publication or were not published. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the Mark Twain Papers contains an uncr- incredible variety of stuff, which is what I tried to illustrate here. I mean, everything from literary manuscripts, that's the page from the Blue Jay Yarn uh, mm-hmm. to a letter to Howells. Uh, he says uh, he's, com- he's talking about the the proofreader of a Connecticut Yankee who says that the punctuation is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Mark Twain says that I've, I gave orders to have the <clears throat> man shot without giving him time to pray. <laughs> uh, he did not like people f- Well, he did not like anyone messing with his text. No, no. <laughs> and you think, may think, well, punctuation. Uh, but he said, look, I'm a typesetter. I, I, mean, I was a typesetter. I know how I want the punctuation. And of course, all the other typesetters and typesetter taking his book also had, you know, a big pressure on him to do it the way the house wanted. Right. Because if he didn't, then he had to go back and correct it on his own time. Right. Right. So there's this continuous fight all March Twain's career long between what he wants, what he's submitted to them and what they want to do. Uh, and he doesn't have the patience to go in and force them to do it. <laughs> he, he, he yells at them. He gives them threats. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to read any more proof after this. But he can't go back and really do the proofreading that is needed. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have here? We have clippings of various kinds, proofs. Receipts. Receipts. <laughs> checks. Finalities. I love that. Oh, well, March, he we, he we writes have, in a book. Well, yeah. yeah, We have a relatively small amount of the, the books that Mark Twain uh, had in his library. The thing about Mark Twain's reading is that he never, he never read a book without engaging continuously in the margins uh-huh. with it. So I, I always say to people, you know, if you if you go to a bookstore and you open the front page and it says S. L. Clemens, mm-hmm. close it and uh, pretend you don't know what it is and go up and buy it because when you buy it, you'll pay a good price for it, but it will be worth more when you walk out the door. <laughs> in this case, he's written That's good advice for anyone. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, this is a book by Theodore Roosevelt that obviously Roosevelt sent him. The title was A Square Deal. Deal. Yeah. Uh, Mark Twain has crossed that out and written banalities on it. <laughs> um, this is a page from one of the notebooks. Can I get up without? Sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. Um, this, I put this up here because we, when we were transcribing them, we didn't we didn't know what this meant. This says a little less than kin but more than kind. This says a little dark E in bed mm-hmm. with nothing, the zero, over him. This says, I undertake to overthrow your undertakings. <laughs> Take a drink. That's self-explanatory. <laughs> Word games. Say again? Word games. Well, he was fascinated by such things. Those were not invented by him. They were, it turns out that they were in something called the American Agriculturalist. Ah. Um, (laughs) They had a section on this kind of uh, uh, game, and he he found them, wrote them down. Well, do you want to talk about this? No, that's scrap letters. He he took a letter, he ripped it up, and then sent it off to his mother. (laughs) 
Well, you have to understand that 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 he reproached his mother for for not writing on whole sheets of paper. He said, "Is is paper scarce in St. Louis?" <laughs> she would she would write on odd fragments. So since she didn't really, you know, stop, he takes a letter that he's received. He tears it up. Uh-huh. And then he writes a letter to her on each of the pieces, <laughs> sometimes on both sides, sometimes not. And it's not a jigsaw. That is to say, right. you can't put it together by, you know, putting the pieces together. You have to kind of read each piece and figure it out. And I, I transcribed one down here. Yeah. Ma, I think, I think it is likely that some men are so constituted that they will, under circumstances of an irregular nature, manifest idiosyncrasies of an irrefragible and even pragmatic and latitudinarian character. But otherwise indifferently situated, the reverse is too often the case. How does this strike you, your son Sam? <laughs> Mark Twain uh, loved teasing his mother. And, and uh, uh, she becomes Aunt Polly, right? Well, she is certainly the model for Aunt Polly. model for yes, Aunt Polly, right. yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is the example from from uh, Innocence Abroad of of a of a typesetting issue, right? Oops. Yeah, it's it, it's a very minor issue, but I right. use it to illustrate what textual work is all about. If we look at the evidence for how Mark Twain titled his book mm-hmm. in letters in various places, he always spells pilgrims with a singular, New mm-hmm. Pilgrims Progress, which would be the name of Bunyan's book, right? He originally wanted to call it the New Pilgrim's Progress, but he thought that was a little too daring. So he settled for the Innocence Abroad or the New Pilgrim's Progress. So which is it, the way he put it in his letter or the way it was printed in the book? And I don't think we have all the slides up here, but basically no, if you look at yeah. the, the various kinds of evidence we have, you know, the, what does the binding say? What does the spine say? What does the uh, earliest form of the text say? What is, you know, on and on and on, advertisements. It's all singular pilgrims. So when we publish our edition, we're going to put make it singular pilgrims. And that's going to give the catalogers in the Library of Congress a tough time. Tough because time. Everything else is plural. You did your, your uh, PhD on this book, right? I did do yeah. a PhD on that, yeah. I recently read it. It's a terrible dissertation. <laughs> terrible. We're going to improve on it, I hope. Well, if you can't 40 years later say, I could have done that better, then you, you, you probably didn't You really have anything, wasted right? a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, this, there are several Mark Twain centers. This is Hannibal, Missouri. Um, he didn't, he wasn't born here. He was born in Florida, Missouri, just a little bit outside. So this, this but this is where he kind of grew up. Yeah, he and, grew up here, right. Yeah, and and they put this, this fence probably wasn't there, but they put this fence up as if the story from Tom Sawyer where they have to, paint the fence. And they do several other things like that. But there's there's a real funny... Uh, I, I went to Hannibal in 1978. It was just before I wrote my Mark Twain's Visit to Heaven, which I, a short story, which I'm sure you know where that came from. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to say about that, which was really funny, was I was there at the bookstore, um, and I found a copy of a, of a book. The, you know the 1924 edition of his collected works? They're yellow and red. Yes, you know, I do. Those. So... Um, when I was eight years old, we moved into my grandmother's house after she passed away. And I rummaged around in the attic a little later, and I found part of that whole edition. I found about 12 books. And I brought them down and put them in my room, and I read them all. And eventually they made their way back up into the attic. And when I was in college and got really very interested in Mark Twain again, um, I went looking for them, and I found those 12 books back in the attic. Um, and then I asked my mother, you know, there's another 12 books to this. Uh, ask all the aunts and uncles. I have uh, 11 brothers and sisters, and I have 
my mother's from a family of nine, my dad from a family of 12, so I've got, you know, a, a ton of relatives. So I said, ask all the relatives where the other editions are, if they have them, because I know that they're not reading them. Um, and uh, so I got another six copies, so I was now up to 18. I was in the Milwaukee, uh, there's, in the Milwaukee airport, there's a used bookstore. I don't know if you've ever been no, there, but never there, have. it's been there for a long time. And I would check all the time when I went through Milwaukee, this was long ago, and uh, all before 1978. And one time I was in there and it had seven books from that edition and five of the seven books were the ones I was missing. So I was now up to 23 out of 24. Uh, and that was in Hannibal in 78. And they didn't have those editions, but they had a reprint. And the reprint was the one with my platonic sweetheart in it, right? So I got the reprint, so I now had an almost thing. Now, 10 years later, I have a friend, Earl Blackburn, who teaches music and, uh, at the time. And he was up in Vermont at a bookstore. And he said, oh, I found a copy of my platonic sweetheart. It's just great. And he brought it back. And it was the 24th one. And I said, can I give you the reprint and take the original? And he said, yes, yes, you can have it. So, so I, I put this collection together in a very odd way. But Resistance pays off. <laughs> so that's Hannibal. So this is the way he looked about the time he got married or so, right? Well, it's a little later than that, but yes, about that time, 1872. So we, don't know, we always see the images from his old age. It's like Einstein yes, from his old age. Yes, you see his white hair. And Franklin, and yes, you know, everybody right. likes the old age right. images for, right. for people who last that long. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's about it. So now this is the house mm -hmm. um, that he built with um, his wife's money, pretty that's much. And, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it's in Hartford, Connecticut, and this is a, a, a big uh, Mark Twain uh, tourist location. He basically lived there for 20 years. Yeah, they lived for 20, and that's where they grew, raised their family. Yes, and um, were very unhappy when they could not bring themselves to move back in. Right. Um, uh, this has now been restored in a very professional way. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't just, you know, move a lot of old furniture back into the building. They, right researched it. They figured out what kind of decoration have they had done on the interior, and then they reproduced it. Mm -hmm. And they were always on the hunt for um, objects, furniture, whatever that, that were once there. So it's it's a really remarkable um, achievement to have been able to sustain it. Not, and without, it's not a, not a big surprise that, you know, it came very close to being torn down several times before yeah. the people in, in Hartford got together and, and really pulled it together. Uh, just to your left over here now is a very big, um, very wonderful uh, visitor center, which they have built in the last decade or so. Um, it's cramping their style a bit because it was a very expensive to to build. Mm -hmm. But this is regularly open to visitors and uh, excellent guided tours. Uh, I've taken the tour several times, learned things I didn't know. So. Now, I, I've been there at least a dozen times over the years, and the one time was the funniest time. And I, I, just, I was uh, I, I worked in New York for a while, uh, oh, for many years, um, and I had a business deal in Boston to negotiate. And I drove up instead of flying up, so on the way back I could stop at the house. But the deal went on too long, so I didn't get there until about seven, eight o'clock at night. It was about dusk, and I came. You know, I came up and walked around. It was before the visitor center. I was just walking around. And by the way, for those who don't know, there's people say that they tried to make it look a little like a steamboat because he used to be a steamboat uh, pilot. And people wonder whether that's true or not. But so I came up and, and I just wandered around the outside of the house and just enjoyed the evening for a little bit. And right there under that window was a guy bedding down for the night, a homeless man. Um, and, and he was, you know, I said, oh, I said, uh, what are you doing here? He says, oh, this is my house. 
And I said, oh, it is. I said, <laughs> and I, I said, uh, well, I just came for a tour and the tour's already over. And he says, oh, well, I can give you a tour. So he got up and he started giving me a tour. He said, we can't go inside, but I'll tell you all about the outside. And I won't tell you his whole tour, but it was a delightful tour. Um, but one of the things he said was that there's all this lattice work on the, yes. on the thing. And near the door over here, it's, it's fancier near the front entrance. And he said, see this lattice work? And he told me a whole bunch of stuff about the lattice work. And then he moved over here and he said, you see, it's a little simple over here. I think he was running out of money <laughs> because he had lost money in a typesetter, all of which is, you know, bad timing. But, but <clears throat> it was the most charming thing I've ever heard about the house, <laughs> to have this homeless man tell me that Mark Twain was yeah, running out of money. That's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, the color in that is very red, not quite as red. That. Not quite as red as that. Yeah. Now, so this is the family on the on the time, right? Uh, right. And that was where he, he raised his family, basically. That's correct. They're out, they're really out on that place that you met your guide. Yeah. Um, this is Jean. The youngest, right. Yes. And I believe this is Clara, and that that's Susie yeah. over on the right. His wife is Olivia. Um, I may have confused Susie and Clara without... Meaning to. And that one, similar. Yes. All right. So these are, these are just pictures in the background. So let's, let's, we can, we can talk about, you know, some other things that went on at, at the Mark Twain papers and okay. the Mark Twain project. Because first of all, I mean, you, you, you said that there was cramped quarters. You mentioned that earlier, right. but you, there was a flood in, in the early 2000s. You, yeah. you, you said to me earlier. Well, I, th- when when we were crammed in there like sardines, and, yeah. I mean, um, this was pretty alarming. I used to come to work about 7 o'clock, and uh, I came upstairs. It's on the fourth floor, and I ran into this building and grounds guy. And he says, can you tell me where the Christmas tree is? This was not December. Right. And, well, I said, I just happened to know where it was. The Christmas tree is the big, tall st- a stem pipe with valves on it that allows you to turn the water off on, let's say, the sprinkler system. Uh-huh. So I showed him that, and then I went inside, and there was uh, on the order of six to seven inches of water on the floor throughout the entire suite of offices. Wow. It was just about to go over the bottoms of the of the first set of, of um, card files. And it turned out that... Um, this building, the annex of the library, mm-hmm. um, had had a sprinkler system installed, you know, ex post facto. So it was yeah. not part of the original thing. And it turned out, of course, that the, nobody had ever done any maintenance on this at all. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of the night, the sprinklers above us, on the floor above us, broke and started pouring water down, you know. Yep. I very quickly learned that the far northeast corner of the building was the lowest building, part of the building. That's where all the water went. Um, you can imagine this was a little bit alarming. I mean, there mm-hmm. was a cabinet of, uh, of Mark Twain's letters. It was probably worth on the order of $30 million. And there's a big stream of water coming down right next to it from the crack in the mm-hmm. um, So we alerted everybody, and mm-hmm. uh, they got us a whole bunch of fans and mops and stuff, and I took uh, the uh, the plastic sheeting that we were provided, and I put it over everything, mm. and I said, the plastic sheeting stays until you can tell me this isn't going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fire department doesn't want you to put plastic sheeting over things because 
the whole point of the of the sprinkler system is to get things wet. <laughs> right? But I said, we got something else to consider here. Yeah. And so it took us, I would say, about two weeks to get completely dried out. Mm-hmm. We were extremely lucky. We mm-hmm. did not lose anything of his or anything that was rare mm-hmm. or I- irreplaceable. We lost you know, some of the stuff that we'd put on the floor because we couldn't find a place to put it on the shelves. Mm-hmm. But those, even those things were uh, freeze-dried and, and restored to us in many ways. Uh-huh. Um, I, I happen to think, this may not be right, but I, I happen to think that this incident played into the decision of the university to renovate um, the annex, this building, this part of the building that we were in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know that the president came by and uh, took a look around mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before everything got completely dried out. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly thereafter, the the word came down that uh, the money was available to renovate the Bancroft Library. Mm-hmm. The Not all of the money needed, mm-hmm. just the money needed to do seismic retrofitting and basic, you know, basic structure stuff. Mm-hmm. And they ha- what they had to do for this building was to completely gut it mm-hmm. and take everything out of it. It had been, say, it installed false floors between the, the regular floors that were not tied into the uprights. Oh, no. They were they were basically like basically big knives. If the, you know, the quake starts going this way, they were going to, that building was going to collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the next step was for people in charge to, raise private money, mm-hmm. about 35 million bucks, to do everything else that you needed to make the building livable. And they did that in three years, oh. which was remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, speaks to the community spirit of of this area. Uh, it speaks to the, you know, the the wisdom and, and ability to raise money of people like Mac Letch, the late Mac Letch. Mm-hmm. And Mike Heyman, who they were the two chairs of the fundraising committee. Charles Fallhaber, who was the head of the Bancroft at that point. Dave Doerr, who was the head of development. They just plunged right in and got that money in time to get the construction going. It was started, I forget the exact date, but it ended in 2008. When it, you know, when we moved back in, mm-hmm. we had basically 150% of the space that we'd had before. Yeah. No longer... And you weren't in the basement then, either. No, not in the basement. We're in the top. We're in the top, yeah. Yeah, right. I'll tell you this, that, that in the planning for the renovation, there was lots of uh, agitation to move everything of rare, you know, nature into the two bottom floors, which were being, you know, specially constructed for air conditioning and so forth. Right. So I, I, I had to resist that because... Yeah. If they'd done that, basically, it would have been impossible to do the addition. You, you just couldn't, you know, couldn't. go up and down in the, in, the, in the building every time you needed to look at the notebook. And that's 2008 or so, you said. And then you yes. came out with the addition in 2010. Just well, that's that's when the, the first volume of the autobiography came out. Yeah. yeah. We'd been working on it for about three years before then. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Um, Before we get to the autobiography, yes, that's next. Sure. One other thing. Among the rare papers, was the, the first half of Huckleberry Finn already in among those papers at the time of the no. flood, or did you get that later? No. That's, a, no. that's another uh, thing. One of the odd things about the papers is that it contains the things that he didn't publish, right? Mm-hmm. So when he publishes something, it goes to the typesetter, to the publisher. Mm-hmm. And by and large, he did not retrieve those things. He left them with the publisher. Yeah. 
So in the case of Huckleberry Finn, for instance, um, uh, he he receives a letter from someone, uh, a guy named Gluck in, in Buffalo, where he had lived for a while, saying, we are trying to put literary manuscripts on display in the, you know, for the, for the, the people in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Do you have a manuscript you could give us? Mm-hmm. How about Life on the Mississippi, he said. Mm-hmm. March Man writes back the same day. Mm-hmm. says, well, Life on the Mississippi is kind of shabby. How about Huckleberry Finn? <laughs> but it's only half of Huckleberry Finn, he says. Mm-hmm. I can't find, basically, I can't find the first half. So here's the second half. This is about, you know, 550 pages of manuscript. So he sends it off to Buffalo, and it was in Buffalo from 1885 until we did our first, edi- our first edition of Huckleberry Finn in mm-hmm. 19, oh, 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, doesn't say anything more about it. We don't have any other, you know, letters about it. But it turns out that we, we do have two, we have two letters saying, thank you for sending us the first half of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> We already had the second half. Oh. But we didn't know what that meant mm-hmm. because the Buffalo Library, although it had received it, never put it on display. It was assumed to be lost, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't lost, however. It was uh, given by this guy's daughter to her nieces, in, with, along with a lot of other literary manuscripts that he'd collected. Mm-hmm. They eventually moved out to Los Angeles. And in 1990, they decided they better go up into the attic and look at that trunk that they were given. <laughs> and then the top tray is the trunk is, you know, 565 pages of holograph manuscript, the the first half mm-hmm. of the manuscript for Huckleberry Finn. Wow. Uh, I mean, I it really is the most extraordinary experience I have had, maybe except for the autobiography. Yeah. Because um, no one expected ever to see this again. Mm-hmm. Of course, what they wanted to do, the people who found it, they wanted to get paid for it. They wanted right, to sell right. it, right? Uh, they uh, they had Sotheby's come out and verify that it was March Wayne's handwriting and mm-hmm. take it back. And um, They were planning to do you know, an auction, but they were unable to do that because they couldn't show clear title. Huh, uh-huh. In this country, in order to auction it off in public, you have to be able to say, show that you own it. Right, right. right. Now, they could have sold it privately. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there were... Manuscript dealers pooling their resources to buy it right. and sell it off page by page. Oh. Right? So, I mean, making Thank a long story short, happen. it it was eventually given to the Buffalo Public Library, mm-hmm. which is where Mark Twain had given it. We eventually came out with a, a new edition of Huck Finn yep. based on the whole manuscript. And uh, did it have were there were there many changes uh, caused by the original manuscript? Oh yes, I mean in the neighborhood of ten or a hundred or a thousand, at least a thousand. At least a thousand changes. A thousand. Interesting. You have to realize that what Mark Twain does is he writes the whole thing out in longhand, mm-hmm. and he has it typed, and then he takes the typescript, which is basically eight and a half by eleven pages, double spaced, and he revises those. Mm-hmm. In some places, more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite, of course, is the chapter nineteen where Huck is describing. The sunrise, mm-hmm. and you can, you can't see the typescript on which Mark Twain has made these changes. You have to reconstruct it. You have to compare the manuscript with the first edition that was set from this missing mm-hmm. typescript. Uh, but if you do that, you can see in detail how Mark Twain revised this thing. Mm-hmm. 
This is a very famous chapter in which basically people were saying all oh, these wonderful things about it and how, you know, this is Mark Twain discovering the style and so forth and so on. And you, But if you start to compare these two things, the, the original manuscript and the final form of it, you realize that all the things they're praising were achieved in revision. Ah, interesting. Because when he writes it out at first, mm-hmm. there's too much of him in it. Now, uh-huh. Alliteration. There are, you know... Uh, niceties of literary practice that Huck would not do. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's also a little bit worried that the description is too sweet. You know, the flowers, everything smells so wonderful. The Huck, he adds, but Huck says, except not always, because sometimes they let fish dry on the side of the river and it's, right. they smell pretty awful. You know, <laughs> the, in other words, you, you get to see the man working at his greatest achievement mm-hmm. if you are willing to accept this reconstruction. Yeah. Which, of course can't be perfect, mm-hmm. but is as good as we get. Yeah. So I think, uh, oh, it, near, <laughs> I had a picture of him near the end of his life. So just one thing before we get to the autobiography yeah, sure. about his whole life. So he, in near the end of his life, he, he suddenly had a hobby of collecting compliments. And, and so we pulled this out of, of, of one of your other uh, lectures and, and just said, uh, you, this is just, ahead. this is just a transcription of this. This is Mark Twain's handwriting. Right. And he's using these as notes, probably in a speech. Um, he says he calls it a little Montana girl's compliment. She was gazing thoughtfully at a photograph of Mark Twain on a neighbor's mantelpiece. Presently, she said reverently, we've got a Jesus like that at home. Only ours has more trimmings. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to illustrate that. I don't know if you put the illustration. Yeah, there's the... You see, no halo there, but there's a halo here. And that's how you tell the difference between Mark Twain and Christ. <laughs> Some of the things he said probably made a difference, too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So the autobiography, what a project. Yes. And and I think the uh, the audience might not know that, that uh, he, he gave a lot of indications he didn't want this published until 100 years after he died, right? Well, he he said that often and in, and repeatedly. He never put it into his will, or he never made it a legally binding thing. And his biographer Payne mm-hmm. published selections of it in 1924. So mm-hmm. he, that's only 14 years, not 100. Right. Uh, but Mark Twain knew how to sell a book. <laughs> you know? I mean, so saying that, you know when he, he publishes extracts from it in the North American Review while he's still alive, and each extract is headed by the fact, you know, the statement that. This is only part of it. You have to wait 100 years to see the rest of it. <laughs> if that doesn't sell books, you know, nothing will. Uh, and that isn't really why we waited for until 2010. Mm-hmm. We waited until 2010 because we didn't know how to edit it. Mm-hmm. It was a very complicated situation. He basically dictates the manuscript. So the text is, is a series of typescripts, some of which he's revised, some of which he hasn't revised. But there was a puzzle about these typescripts that that no one could solve. In fact, there were scholars saying this text can't be edited. Mm-hmm. It's it's too incoherent. It's unfinished. Um, but the people I work with, Lynn Salamo, Harriet Smith, Ben Griffin, they all uh, s- sneered at that and said, no, we'll figure it out. And they did. <laughs> they figured out that, in fact, um, he had finished it. He had given very clear instructions about how to begin it. He, he begins it with examples of 
of autobiography that he thinks are failed. That he, you know, this didn't work, and mm-hmm. then this didn't work. And then he makes it very clear that the dictation from starting in 1906 goes from then until 1909. Uh, that's the real success. Mm-hmm. Okay? So once that was figured out, it became clear that really we would have for the first time the autobiography as he wanted it. Payne, for instance, when he published his two volumes, he acknowledged that it needed to be six volumes. He just couldn't do it. Right. But in the two volumes, he he basically includes mainly parts of the autobiography that were drafted early and rejected. Mm-hmm. So you get almost none of the actual autobiography in Payne's edition. Mm-hmm. And then when Devoto comes along and decides he wants to kind of publish some of the... He says, this is a crazy... Well, I should have said that Mark Twain's way of proceeding was to talk about whatever he felt like talking about, to yeah. change the subject whenever he wanted to, and not to give you a chronological account of his of his life by any means, as far as the thing in his life. And More so, a mental account of his life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> mental content, right? I mean, yeah. this is what I'm thinking about now. This is what I am, this is who I am now. Yeah. Uh, it's, reading it can be a, a, a strain. Mm-hmm. You might get hit places where you're bored. I was supposed to skip. The only, the only reason not to skip you know, go to the next thing that looks interesting to you and read that mm-hmm. because you're not going to be missing any kind of chronological line. Okay? Right. So anyway, the the editors figured this all out and uh, we brought it out for the, for the first time in this volume, the, for the first time in 2010, mm-hmm. exactly 100 years after he passed um, away. Yeah. He passed away. And to our great surprise and delight, it went the bestseller list for 24 weeks, mm-hmm. New York Times, sold half a million copies in a very short order. Yeah. Uh, books that we produce normally sell maximum of 2,000 copies over 10 years. <laughs> so when you sell 500,000 copies in less than two years, you're in a different world from our point of view. Did the university appreciate the Mark Twain paper slightly more after that? I think you're going to have to ask the university, <laughs> ask the university that. Uh, uh, it, it, it couldn't have escaped their attention. I mean, I must have spent, I don't know, six months in 2010 talking to every news outlet and mm-hmm. speaking for them anywhere I could, you know, I could get a, get a place, get a microphone to talk to. Yeah. Um, that wasn't really my ideal way of spending time, but it was very... Effective. Useful yeah. and effective. Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> I remember that when uh, we were just about to publish, uh, someone else published a, a book in which they asserted that that Mark Twain's secretary had bought him a a vibrator, <laughs> um, and uh, this got mixed up with the autobiography as if it were part of the autobiography, but yeah. of course it wasn't. So I, I don't know how many times I had to explain to them, no, well, even if you believe that, uh, which I don't, um, it's not really part of the autobiography. But what that did was to start a kind of, you know, uh, review cycle that was just voracious. I mean, there were people who didn't like it. Yeah. Um, I think one of them... Uh, Suggested, you know, to, to famous writer, don't give your papers to a university. This is what they'll do to you. <laughs> I had to tell the audience, don't worry. Yeah, that's not going to happen to you. 
<laughs> it only happens to people like Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> create a bestseller 100 years after your death. That's, yeah. That's kind of hard to do. That's kind of hard to do. <laughs> Maybe Voltaire could do it. Yes. Um, that was Garrison Keeter who said that. I that was Garrison. Yeah, right. Exactly. The uh, uh, Mark Twain had, had similar. Uh, I mean, there's lots of problems with his books that people then come on and say, you can't look at Huckleberry Finn anymore because of this. Just the opposite of the arguments from before. Um, there was an argument with the Boston Library, right? That, oh, that yeah. he wrote such a great letter back to. Um... <laughs> well, you're th- I think you're thinking of the Concord Public Library. Ah, for Concord, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, here's one of the greatest innovations in literary work uh, in the century, if not two centuries, um, and their complaint is that this is this is a a book written with very bad language. <laughs> and, and, and about it by a boy who steals things right. and so forth and so on. So, can't let the it, children it, read that. It, yeah, no, can't have, can't have children read that. Uh, and, and Mark Twain says, among other things, yeah, well, that's great because that'll sell us another 100,000 copies. Right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it was ir- irritating to him. And that kind of attitude toward Huck has stayed. You know, mm-hmm. it is like it appears every five years like the months, you know. Yeah. And, the fact is, even today, you have school boards saying, you know, this can't be given to to uh, our sensitive students. And uh, actually, I'm not, I mean, I have I'm a two minds about that. Yeah. I'm kind of, yeah, I mean, making it a school book mm-hmm. instead of a book that you read because you want to. Right. Means that, in fact, there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, I've read Huckfrey and I was made to read Huckfrey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they never get a chance to really enjoy Huck Finn. Right. That's not part of the English department's program. You know? <laughs> Enjoying a book? No. <laughs> well, it's, I, I loved his, his comment to the library. He says, oh, I, I, you've you removed it from the children's section. He um, says, I, I'm very happy with you for doing that because I know from experience um, that uh, if you're a mind soiled in youth, Yes. I can never be fixed. And what, what, what? Well, I mean, he, he points out that you're, you know, that he was made, and others are made to read the entire Bible before they are in their teens, right? And that a soiled mind is uh, never recovered. Never recovered. <laughs> so he, he so thank being, you. He's being facetious yes, about yes. what is this? Actually, he's, you know, he he gets really very appreciative you know, responses from the news, some newspapers, and from people. You know, I mean, I'm remembering one one young lady who writes and says that she's read Huck 50 times mm-hmm. and that she thinks this is a, he's a wonderful guy. And it goes on and on and on. Mark Twain says, well, we're going to put this letter into the next the next edition of Huck Revision, which never comes about. <laughs> but he does write her and thank her. He says, I'd much rather have your opinion than the opinion of 50 ministers yeah. who read it once. Who read it once. And uh, he the, 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 about Huckleberry Finn now, and the issues with the language. Yes. Um, I think it, that Mark Twain would say, okay, so I wrote this to try to bridge the racial gaps. Uh, going, and that's one of the many things that I had in mind with that book. And that because I represented it accurately at the time, the language accurately at the time, that that language is no longer acceptable. Maybe I had at least one small part of the effect of changing that over time. And if it's no longer acceptable, yeah, well, adults can read it or whatever. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's easy to understand why the N word. I'm not going to use the yeah. word because I know it's offends people. It's easy to understand why why the N word is um, 
seen to be forbidden, forbidden, shouldn't yeah. shouldn't be uttered, um, like the name of God, shouldn't utter it, right? Right. Um, but people who say that have probably not read the book. Yeah. Um, they don't realize that it's among other things just a satire on all of the racism that you know you can imagine. Yeah. Um, there's no question in my mind that Mark Twain was not a racist. Mm-hmm. He knew what what white folks had done mm-hmm. to blacks. Yeah. And he maintained that that was a permanent obligation on the part of the of the whites to make some amends for that, right. to, to make an adjustment for that. And so people who, I mean, there are people who have published the text and changed all of the N-word to slave mm-hmm. or something else. Mm-hmm. And that really misses the point because when, let's say, Pap, mm-hmm. I don't even remember Pap, yeah. Pap is a, is, is, is a full-blown uh, redneck, mm-hmm. racist, he meets a minister who is actually not he's quote mulatto on the mm-hmm. on the on the road and he learns that this guy's from Ohio and that he could vote there. Mm-hmm. And he so goes on and rages and rages oh, and you know, I I pushed him off the road to get him out of the way and I was I was on my way to vote if I wasn't too drunk to get there. <laughs> um, but but I'm never going to vote again if they're going to let this guy vote. No, I'm, I'm that's the last. I mean, if they don't see that that is meant to be, you know, a, a ridicule aimed at the racist, it's really kind of too bad. Yeah. And of course, if you take out the N word from Huck's from Pap's speech, it becomes much less powerful. Right. It's powerful because it's so wrong. And people feel that, huh? Right. I mean, the other, you know, scene in Huckleberry Finn that everyone should go back and read again mm-hmm. is uh, when Huck and Jim are on the river, they get separated. Huck's in a canoe and Jim is on the raft and there's a fog and they get, and Jim spends, a, you know, an enormous amount of energy trying to find Huck, mm-hmm. calling for him and calling for him and he can't find him, he can't find him. But Huck, man, he finally gets so exhausted he falls asleep. And so Huck eventually finds his way back to the raft and he gets on and he decides he's going to fool Jim. And so when Jim wakes up, he's so glad to see Jim, see Huck. He said, I could have got down on my knees and kissed your feet. I was so glad to mm-hmm. see you. Huck pretends that he was just dreaming, mm-hmm. which is a way of taking advantage of what he assumes would be Jim's natural interest in dreams. Right. And so Huck does. I mean, so Jim does interpret it as a dream, and one of the one of the outcomes of this dream is that they they find themselves in the free states. Right. In other words, it's a wish fulfilling dream. And then Huck says, "Well, yes, that's all very well, but what's that trash trash there on the on the on the raft? Stuff that's washed up." Mm-hmm. And so Jim looks at it, and he looks back, and he he finally realizes that he's been taken advantage of, mm-hmm. and he says. You know, I was so glad to see you. Blah, blah, blah. That truck there is trash, and trash is what people is that puts dirt on the head of our friends mm-hmm. and makes them ashamed. Right. He turns around and he walks into the wigwam, mm-hmm. and Huck says, uh, "Took me fifteen minutes to uh, get me to. I'm going to say it this time. It has to say to apologize to a nigger. Yeah. But I done it." And I weren't sorry that I did it. And I never done him no tricks like that again. But Jim's speech is so powerful because it is restrained anger at a white man 
whom he cannot, in this situation, he cannot really be, you know, absolutely forthright with. Yeah. So it's it's one of the great achievements of Huckberry Finn. Yeah, when uh, I studied in college, and and uh, you have to write about an essay about it. What I took was that the ending, which a lot of people complain about, and I mm-hmm. said to me, the imagery reminds me of Jim as a Christ-like figure, and he, he gets uh, put in prison for three days, and mm-hmm. then he rises up from it, and so on and so forth. And that, I think, was probably an image, given all the other writing he did, an image in his mind, not the main point of, of mm-hmm. it, but an image in his mind, which is also a really outrageous thing to do at the time, to, to, to make uh, Jesus uh, Jim, you know, or make right. Jesus. right. So, well, but of course, what what uh, what's what's happening there is is complicated in the sense that that people are exasperated with Huck because he doesn't just get in there and help Jim escape. Right. He puts up with Tom's fantasies about all of this, you know, romantic uh, nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> mo- most of which mo- modern readers are not familiar with, mm-hmm. and and they but they tend to over. Um, well, they tend to think that Huck should have this ability to just, you know, say it's say it's uh, time to you know get out of here. And but he, Mark Twain goes out of his way to show you mm-hmm. that Huck still believes that there's that this is the right structure and that he's the one who's wrong right. for trying to kind of break it. And that's why it's complicated at the end. And that's why I think people tend to kind of expect too much of Huck at this point. There's a flaw in the structure. Right, right. I mean, Mark Twain is Mark Twain's not the perfect craftsman, and he certainly mm. doesn't have the patience always to go back and fix things. Yeah. But it's, I think it's clear that there's a, there's a problem there for most readers, which I think would be solved if they were giving a little better push toward treating Huck as if he were still what he is, a little unreformed redneck. He is friends with Jim. He can act on his friendship for Jim. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change what he believes. That, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's like I said, there's compl- structural issues and other things, yes, but, but the right. power that runs through it is, is, I mean, there's also the great scene uh, where he decides to go to hell rather than... You know, of course, yeah, of course. Another very yeah. famous scene. So anyway, that uh, uh, novel uh, and the power of it has been recognized several times and started to fade away and then recognized by somebody else and brought back. And it's interesting how that happens over the time and yes. even even how... Uh, some of the autobi- not autobiographers, but the biographers would put a slant on him, you know, a Freudian slant and these other slants in the 20s and 30s that kind of shifted his uh, reputation. And then, then that came back with all kinds of, you know, once Freud was out of style. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. To it's my ambition to, to drown all those guys with data, <laughs> with information, yeah, exactly. with documents. Documents. <laughs> thing, things that actually, you know, you can rely on because they are documents. Yeah. Um, there's no question that that the, the biographers tend to want to have their own little hobby horse mm-hmm. to ride, whether it's Freudian or whatever. Right. Um, but the only antidote to that is is real information. Yeah. And you've had lots of them come to the Mark Twain paper oh, yes. over the years. Yeah. And have you had? Uh, did Hal Holbrook ever come by? Oh, Hal Holbrook has been a very loyal supporter of ours for some time. He's yeah. he's visited the paper several times. Uh, we're fan- his fans partly because uh, there must be something like 400 imitators of Mark Twain. Out right, there right, right, right. Um, but he is the only one we know of. Uh-huh. 
who does not use his own jokes and his own stories when he's up on stage. <laughs> he only gives you text that comes from Mark Twain. Now, he's got to edit it. He's got to kind of condense it to make it dramatic and all that. But no, he's a, I, I consider him a kind of scholar of, of Mark Twain's public persona. We can't, you know, go out there and perform the way Mark Twain did, which he did a lot of. Right. But Holbrook's, uh, Holbrook has, you know, done it for years and years and years. He's recorded it. I think he's stopped doing it now, but yeah. he's, I, I think, one of the greats, in my opinion. And he, um, I think he started in 1953, from right? what I know, right? Yeah. And uh, he met a woman named Carolyn Thomas Harnsberger, who I'm sure you're familiar with. She wrote Family Mark Twain. And... Uh, in about, let's see, must have been 1981, 82, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, studying uh, to get a, a license to, to sell securities because I was impoverished and I had done writing and I wasn't getting anywhere. So um, I was in the library at the University of Wisconsin studying and I was bored because it was just, you know, it was just boring material. So I went to the, it was a reference library. I went to the reference library and I said, you know, do you have anything interesting around here? Especially if you got something about Mark Twain. And she showed me a section. They had a few books. And one of them was Carolyn Thomas Harnsberg. So I, I just read her book <clears throat> from start to finish. Of course. Without, without, you know, going back to my studies. And then I went and asked her, the, the woman, I said, in, this was very early days of big computers. Is, is there any way to tell whether this woman is still alive? And she said, uh, let me check. She said she's written a lot of other books. She probably would get a notice in the New York Times. I, we do have their obituaries. She looked for that. No, not. And she knew that she lived, she could find her address too. And she lived in Winnetka, just outside of Chicago. And I had to go to Chicago for my exam. So I went to Chicago and then I went to Carolyn's home in Winnetka right afterwards. Um, and I knocked on the front door and Carolyn was about 80 years old at the time. And Carolyn was fr uh, one of, it's like a 20 year friend with Clara, the, the, yes. the daughter, right? Yes. So, um, I knock on the door, and she's a very small. She was a very small woman, and she peeked out of a balcony at the top floor, and she said, uh, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm just somebody I like Mark Twain, and I, I know that you did. You knew her daughter, and I had a couple of questions. Oh, I'll be right down." She came down, invited me in. We started talking, and about an hour and a half, she suddenly said, "Oh, uh, by the way, I have all these things that Clara gave me," and she brought me up to the room with all of these, uh, you know, like the Stormfield guest book, that kind of stuff. Um, and then she said, and, and I'm sorry, but I, I've got to leave because I'm in the, the Evanston Symphony and I'll be back in a couple of hours. And she, she <laughs> took off in the car and left me there. I didn't know that. I yeah. I know she played. Yeah. And, and she, uh, she played. I mean, she, I asked her, she said, I used to be the first uh, violin, but I'm the third or the fourth. No, I just kind of <laughs> move in the background when she was 80. Um, and uh, so anyway, she, she stayed there. She had me stay the night. She was very, very nice to me. And then a couple of years later, uh, as a thank you, uh, I set up the 150th uh, uh, birthday party in 1985 for Mark Twain at Delmonico's at the place where he'd had his uh, 70th birthday party, and she was the guest of honor. And not Hal, uh, we asked him, but he was already performing that night, but one of the other ones. And Carolyn had done in the late 40s what, what now computers do really well, which was she organized a lot of quotes. Yes. And Hal came and got all those quotes from her and, and worked with her in the late 40s and early 50s to get the material once he decided to do this. So, so when, they, they were good friends. So when she did die, yeah. he gave those files to us. Oh, excellent. So you should come over and take a look. I, I'm absolutely. But there's lots to look at. And, there's lots to look at. And, uh, and it, it was, it was a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful event. We had about 70 people or so uh, at, at El Monaco's, and, uh, and it was just a couple of years before she died. Her whole family was there. Anyway, it was, 
she 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 was uh, she called herself a twentyac. That was her her her, her term for a twentyac. If she invented that, that's interesting. I don't know, didn't know that, but a lot of people consider themselves twentyacs. <laughs> I don't. That's not my. Yeah, that, it's, it's a little too close to maniac. Yeah, too close. <laughs> almost the same thing. Almost. She uh, she came back from the uh, symphony that night, you know, and and uh, she said, uh, everybody. Can't believe that I let you stay here, but but uh, you know you can trust somebody who likes Mark Twain. Is what yeah. she said. Yeah, good thought. So um, so let's talk about uh, that was the group of editors for the Mark Twain. That papers. was a group of editors, and this is this is a statue of Mark Twain that's in the Bancroft Library, or is well, that it's actually in the main entrance to the main library. Main entrance, to the main library. Um, right. It was uh, part of an effort on the part of the class of '58 uh-huh. to raise a lot of money for us. Ah. Um, if you, uh, if you gave them a certain amount, I think it was 58,000, they would give you a, a miniature, a maquette duplication of this. Ah. Um, but a lot of people come by and have their picture taken with Mark Twain. Um, I was just sitting there trying to think what I was going to say next. And a woman named Beth McGonagall came by and snapped that. She was an excellent photographer. Yeah. It's a perfect picture. It's and, really great. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, so you can see what um what all that time has done to me <laughs> well this reminds me because uh, at the 100th uh well the publication party for the yes. autobiography you had a really big party it was yes. really a great party uh, in the Bancroft library and that was available for all the people who came to sit down and have their picture taken that's and then correct. they just emailed it to you that's correct which was very very nice and that's where i got mine yes. from so yes. That was a yeah. That party you referred to this was was put together by Dave Dewar, who was head of the mm-hmm. the development in the library. He knew a lot of good people to come and talk, and they did wonderful job. Yeah. We had to sort of pick out stuff from the autobiography that we thought might work, mm. but they they put the magic to it. I must say, yeah, uh, they had me laughing in the aisles. I'll tell you that. Yeah, and you you know the material. I mean, I've read, <laughs> read it before, so when you get me to laugh, that's pretty good. Well, I still I still remember Rita Moreno's performance because uh, she she I don't know if she was in a wheelchair or just on crutches, but she sure. she was and she came up and she was about eighty years old, something like that. She came up and when she started speaking, she seemed like she was sixteen years old. You no, know, it was a, a, an amazing performance of what she read. Now she's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I introduced all of those guys in a way that it was supposed to be brief. But I think I remember saying that she'd won an Emmy and it was, she she won four of the the big performing, you know, awards that mm-hmm. that um, people get. Uh, and as far as I know, she's still going. Yeah, still good. So what else is still going is Mark Twain's writing. So uh, we we've got a few minutes left. Okay. Um, well, right now we're trying to um, well we're trying to adjust to the COVID nineteen, but. We are trying to produce uh, three more editions. One is a, a collection of the letters between 1876 and 1877. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last printed volume of those letters was uh, some time ago. Yeah. Uh, when we publish things these days, we publish both in print and online mm-hmm. um, so that you can get free access. You don't have to buy the book. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the online is more convenient just mm-hmm. for searching and that kind of stuff. Uh, we're also doing an edition of The Innocence Abroad, which is Mark Twain's first big bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, we are putting together a collection of the things that he wrote 
for the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise, which is back in Virginia City, mm-hmm. from San Francisco in 1865 and 66. He was here, unmarried, footloose and fancy-free, needing to work because he didn't have any money, mm-hmm. but wrote a daily letter of some 2,000 words to the Enterprise. And unfortunately, the Enterprise files are largely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these texts have to be found in contemporary reprints of them or in scrapbooks or whatever. But the recent technology of digitizing 19th century newspapers has also made it possible to find things that we never would have found otherwise. So this will be the first time those what's left of that body of, of newspaper letters um, has been put together in one big, you know, one collection that's as coherent and well-documented as possible. And then beyond that, um, Ben Griffin is editing Quinnett Wilson, which is mm. uh, excellent. really an important book that is complicated in ways that you can hardly imagine. Mm. Mark Twain, when Mark Twain's writing it, he um, he's really in the throes of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And at midpoint, you know, he's, he's already had it typed up. He decides to, to tear it apart and pull out a big chunk of it and put it back together. And once you figured all that out and figured out what he really did and what he didn't know what he was doing, you, you wind up with basically two texts, the text as he originally had it mm-hmm. and the text as he published it. Mm-hmm. And that's all uh, going forward um, very, very fast. Well, both Ben and Harriet uh, came to speak at the Commonwealth Club um, before. Yes. Um, and both about when I think when the second and the third volume came out, did great. And if anybody wants so they can listen to the audio recording of those Good. things uh, just Good. on the website. So um, here's some questions that have come from the audience. Um, can you, Robert talk about this is from Gary Landsman. Uh, can Robert talk a little bit about Twain in California, Angels Camp in Sonora? Sure. I mean, it's one of the most remarkable periods of his life. He He's in San Francisco in late 1865. Um, he's gone. He's gone bail bond for somebody who a friend of his, Gillis, mm-hmm. who's been in a fight, uh, and he, Gillis has left, and so he's about to have to pay the bond. Mm-hmm. So the other Gillis brothers invites him up to Angel's camp, and he stays there a total of uh, 81 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say that because if you were to go to Angel's Camp today, you would think he'd been there for a month or 10 years. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, he was away from the big city. He was with companions who were very congenial and who loved to tell stories themselves. And he absorbs all kinds of folklore and stories, makes notes of it in his his notebook that will go into his books for the next 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is a very formative period. And he's also, this is a period where he's he, he's not really sure what he wants to do. He's got this talent um, and for, for what he calls for humor, um, but he, he's not at all sure that this is, you know, going to be a, a career for him. Mm-hmm. And so when he comes back, there's the, you know, a long sort of uh, six, eight months period in San Francisco where he is without income and... Uh, really without much idea of what he's going to do. Um, uh, he gets to the end of this 1865, and it's 
he writes the jumping frog story, mm-hmm. which he has heard in Angel's Camp. In Angel's Camp, exactly. And, and, and you know, we have two manuscripts from that, and one's one's a kind of very long, you know, attempt to write this story that just stops because <laughs> it's too it's too long, and then he has another version which is too short. He gets to the point of the story too fast, and then eventually. Uh, the story as we have it, you know, published in the Saturday Press. Now, I didn't say much about what goes on in Angel's Camp, except that he's involved mainly by watching mm-hmm. uh, them do uh, mining. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pocket mining, right? Um, in which basically what had been treated as a, a, a big mining operation has still pockets of gold in you know, scattered throughout the hills. Mm-hmm. And you locate these by how they migrate down to the foot of the of the hill. Yeah. And then you trace them back up, and then you find the pocket, and that can have a fair amount of gold in it. Right. Um, but this is a period when he's, you know, he's getting to know the Gillises again. Uh, mm-hmm. He probably hears the, the, the Blue Jay yarn that, when he's there. Right. He certainly hears uh, stories that get into Huckleberry Finn, the... Mm-hmm. the King and the Duke. King and the Duke. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I, I say, the reason I mentioned the 81 days is that people think, well, God, what's 81 days? Mm-hmm. Well, it's an important time. moment yeah. in the, his development where he's just about to latch on to his talent and say, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make this into something. And he always wondered whether being too humorous was not being serious enough about different things, but he used it as a weapon, uh, you know, at the end of his life for, and all through his life for different big political life. issues. All yeah. through his life. I mean, late in the autobiography, he he he, rem- he points out that you know there were dozens and dozens of American humorists mm-hmm. who, in 1906, you knew you never heard of. Yeah. And he says the reason I'm still around is that I've always preached. I've always I'm I'm a moralist in disguise, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, not only that, he's a lot better at it than most of those humorists. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing, there's no shortage of, of talent here. He has an enormous talent for, 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 uh, for the language and for humor. And, and for the moralist part. And for the moralist part. Yeah, right? no, the combination's tough and yeah. unusual. I'm always struck by how, you know, just the most casual kind of letter, you know, brings that to, to the surface. And yeah. here's, a, here's a brief letter that showed up not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a long time answering your letter, my dear Miss Harriet. But then you must remember, this is an equally long time since I received it. So there's no blame on either side. Why is that important? I, I don't know anyone who can read that and not realize that you know they have the similar experience of not answering letters promptly. Maybe that's a pretty good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice excuse. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Um, at the time, um, and, and by the way, in old Sacramento, there's still the, the building where the offices of yes. the Alta Sacramento were, but he was the Sacramento all, Union. Yeah. And he, uh, for them, wasn't it for that paper that he went to Hawaii? Yes, that's correct. Sandwich Islands. And, correct. and, and then when he came back, he got to start speaking, um, he, a, as a, as a speaker. Right. He, yeah. for the first time he spoke in San Francisco. Right. And, and, and from that point, he also got an assignment from the San Francisco Alta California to go basically to go around the world writing newspaper letters for them, and that leads immediately to the Innocence Abroad trip, right. The, right. the Quaker City trip. But you're right; the, the, he loved the, the Sacramento Union, He's mm-hmm. people who ran it, best best editors of a newspaper anywhere. Mm-hmm. He, when he was in Hawaii, uh, the uh, Hornet, the survivors of the Hornet, which was mm-hmm. burned at the line, so was carrying. 
turpentine and various other things. So there are three, I think, three longboats set out from this wreck to try to find land. Mm-hmm. And really only one of them made it to um, Honolulu. And he's there at the time, and he interviews them, even though they're in terrible shape. He borrows the, the, the journals, were kept by a couple of the guys online, and writes up this enormous story and sends it to the Sacramento Union mm-hmm. as an exclusive. Mm-hmm. And so when he comes back to San Francisco, he has to go up and get paid for his... And they ask him how much, and he says, well, $300. <laughs> and after they got picked themselves up off the floor, they went and go and talk to the boss. The boss says, pay it. <laughs> That's why I thought they were good good folks. Well, there's one more. Yeah, that always helps, doesn't it? Yes, it does. To get, to get paid with your escort. The uh, other question uh, that's come in um, is something you always get just like anything uh, else. Can you say a few words about Isabel Lyon and the part she played in his life? Because there's been a controversy about this, although I think the controversy was put to rest almost 10 years ago now, too, but still. Yes. Um, Isabel Lyon was his secretary and personal assistant really from about 19... 19- Oh four till nineteen oh eight, late nineteen oh eight. What happens is that that she and a, a guy who was also assisting Mark Twain, named Ralph Ashcroft, um, are very close to to Clemens. I mean, they're doing all kinds of things for him and and basically taking care of him, mm. and they managed to put before him a power of attorney that put them in complete control of his affairs. Mm-hmm. And he signs it without knowing that he mm-hmm. signs it. Okay. When he discovers that, there's an enormous blow-up. He fires them, mm-hmm. um, and there's all kinds of recrimination and nastiness. And he writes something with it, which is called the Ashcroft Lion Manuscript, which is basically his account of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we published it as the third in the at the end of the third volume of the autobiography. Mm. It's not part of the autobiography, but it's so autobiographical and it's so pertinent to that understanding that period, 1909, um, that we thought that's where it should go. Uh, there are those who think that he mistreated Miss Lyon. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not seen anyone who felt that way who could explain to me why she has this power of attorney. Mm-hmm giving her complete control over his affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a mistake on her part, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't didn't work out well. No. She, I think, was a, a remarkable person in many ways. She did not go on to, you know, badmouth him and, mm-hmm. and say nasty things about him. She remained loyal to him for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, whether or not she took things and sold them, yeah, yeah. who knows? Uh, we we do know that there at least one thing she and Ashcroft took to Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and they were trying to sell it. Mm-hmm. And Mark Twain sends his lawyer out and says, basically, give me that back, mm-hmm. or I'll publish this thing I've written about the about mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah. So it's it's very it's very sad for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of admiration for her. I think she made a mistake. Yeah. Um, Ashcroft, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, more, of, more of a snake, I think, than mm-hmm. than, than not. Um, and so, in any case, the 
in the Mark Twain community of scholars and people who think about this kind of thing, there are people who think she got a raw deal and that she was right, and there are people who don't agree with that. Yeah. I'm on the latter side. And I think, you know, a, a big part of the pain you can feel in this is is that he felt that he was separated from his daughter, Jean, by by lot by someone lying to him. Uh, well, that is, is that, in fact, I what, think that that's, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. He, he he acknowledges that he made a mistake in yeah. letting Isabel Lyon um, determine that Jean should be sent to a Jean was an epileptic. She nobody knew how to treat epilepsy at the time. Right. So it put you in a in an institution of some kind. He allowed this to happen and regretted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and says in this document. It's my fault. my fault. I didn't do it right. You know? I think that's one of the strongest testimonies to what, in fact, actually happened. Yeah. Isabel Lyons saw Jean as in the way of her control. Right, right. So she got her out of the way. But fortunately, the Mark Twain papers are in your control, and you're letting uh, everybody have access. So it's just absolutely a, a absolute wonderful uh, addition to the literature of America to have all that access, all the papers. And we, we just touched on a few things. People have very, I mean, people know Mark Twain for his, his Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer stories, this love of the friendship between how important that is sure. and, and, and childhood memories and how delightful they are. But, but he's so much deeper that what, what gives those stories depth is everything else that fascinated him as, a, as an adult male. Right. Yeah. And if you just look at the, you know, there's like 2,000, 3,000 short works that he published during mm-hmm. his lifetime. It's just extraordinary, the amount of experimentation, trying this, trying that, all over the place. And, you know, even even more so than in the works themselves. I mean, Connecticut Yankees, really very experimental mm-hmm. in some ways. So is Huck to some extent, mm-hmm. well, to a large extent. I mean, no one in the past had ever told a novel-length story in the voice of a 14-year-old illiterate redneck. Mm-hmm. No one. Mm-hmm. And Mark Twain's one of Mark Twain's great achievements was to recognize that that voice could be a more powerful voice in telling a story than the private and is a uh, public facing voice of of the author himself. In Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain speaks only once in his own voice mm-hmm. at the very beginning, where he's talking about the dialects that he's used. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to explain that there are seven or eight dialects and he's making this explanation because he doesn't want people to think that they're all trying to talk alike and not succeeding. <laughs> but that's the, fir- that's the first and last time he speaks in his own voice. Everything else is in Huck's voice. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not because Mark Twain agrees with everything Huck says by right. no means, right? But you're never in doubt. Even though you're listening to Huck, you're never in doubt about where Mark Twain stands. That's an amazing achievement. It is. It is. Thank you so much for coming and sharing this with us. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.